I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 41 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with Andrew Hay. Andrew is an information security industry veteran with close to 20 years of experience as a security practitioner, industry analyst, and an executive. As the co-founder and chief technology officer of Leo Cybersecurity, he's a member of the senior executive leadership team responsible for the creation and driving of the strategic vision for the company. Prior to Leo, Andrew served as the Chief Information Security Officer at Data Gravity, where he advocated for the company's total information security needs and is responsible for the development and delivery of the company's comprehensive information security strategy. Before that, he served as the Director of Research at OpenDNS, where he led the research efforts for the company. Prior to OpenDNS, he was the Director of Applied Security Research and Chief Evangelist at Cloud Passage Inc. In this episode, we discuss his startup and dial-up tech support, the role of the CISO, security in a startup, the landscape of security solutions, managing his speaking engagements, speaking as edutainment, cloud forensics, and so much more. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. All right, Andrew, thank you for joining me in Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? I am doing pretty well. Great, great. And you're out uh, out in San Francisco? Yep. Beautiful. Lovely San Francisco, at least for today. Yeah. And I am on plane tomorrow (laughs) (laughs) well hopefully the fires have subsided up in wine country too Uh, i think they're all contained now so that's good that's good that's good now actually you know if if you can maybe kind of step us through a little bit and the audience a little bit through your your kind of background and i know you've been in security for a number of years but what was kind of your early starts and got you to where you are today well i actually started uh doing dial-up tech support and if I, i always tell people that it kind of level sets your expectations of humanity doing dial-up tech support. Oh yeah. And I, I wish dial-up was still around because it would humble a lot of people very, very quickly. Um, but from there, uh, got into more of a networking, uh, like business networking, ISDN, a, uh, ADSL cable modem type of thing, uh, all in support roles. And, uh, then worked at Nortel because I'm Canadian and everyone has to work at Nortel at least once. Uh, and like every Canadian, I got laid off from Nortel and then I was out of work for a while. So I figured, well, with my tech background, I can take it one of two ways. Um, at the time, web development was really hot and people were making a lot of money doing web development. So I could go that route or uh, I could try this security thing that a lot of people were starting to get into. Luckily, I didn't go the web development route and went the security route and um, started working at Nokia. And that was my my real foray into network security and just kind of exploded from there over various companies and countries. Gotcha. And so I think when I picked up some of the stuff that you were doing, you certainly got got involved with companies that got further acquired and, and, and things like uh, OpenDNS that then became part of Cisco. 
What's the ride like on one of those kind of acquisitions? It's, I, I would say it's different. Um, so I wasn't there for the Q1 Labs acquisition uh, by IBM, uh, but, but I did, you know, I was very early on at Q1 Labs. And from what I heard, it was, you know, from friends and colleagues, it was pretty, you know, they're not going to rock the boat for a while. And I, when I was at OpenDNS, it was the same thing. And people told me that uh, Cisco would not change anything in the first year because they didn't want to disrupt the company's ability to make money. And they didn't want a mass exodus. They wanted people to feel and act as if they were doing the exact same job um, just under a different banner. And that was definitely the case for the first year. After the first year, uh, I'm told that's when the changes really started to take place. And there was some shuffling of, of uh, executives and the management reporting tiers and consolidation of some of the teams, expansion of some of the teams. So, you know, I, I guess I could say, so I, I was only there three months, uh, three months after the acquisition. And then I had a really good opportunity to become a CISO at a, a startup on the East coast. And I'm kind of glad I took it. I'm not a, I'm not really a big company guy. So it, uh, small companies definitely work much better for me. Gotcha. And so kind of moving to more of a, a leadership role, I mean, we've certainly seen this, this CISO role develop over the past few years and kind of come out from just being purely an IT function and have more of a risk management leadership role within side of organizations. How did you find that transition of going into that type of position? It was, you know, I, I really did enjoy it. It was, um, it was a switch. It felt a little bit more like, um, how can I put it? So you definitely feel as though you have more of a seat at the table and you can bring a lot of your past experience to bear and help the, the company change their messaging um, and the way they perceive security or even technology in general. So I will say that the difference between a CISO at an enterprise company and a CISO at a startup is that as with any role in a startup, you're wearing a lot of hats. Um, so one day I felt like I was in charge of marketing the other day I was you know, speaking at a conference. The next day I was developing policies and procedures internally, um, sales calls. It was, it really was all over the place. And I like that kind of, uh, experience actually kind of keeps me on my toes as opposed to, you know, enterprise CISO sitting in a cubicle or in an office, just measuring, <laughs> right, right. Measuring. I guess, you know, what, you know, being in a small organization, what are some of the metrics that you do look for for security management um, as a role of a CISO in a, in a small organization? Certainly, you might not have the thousand panes of glass that, you know, from a million different products that a, a big enterprise has, but you had to um, imagine you developed some level of detection and monitoring. Yeah, and in, in a startup, it was, you know, security, as in most organizations is perceived as a an additional cost sometimes a barrier to innovation and progress but at least with a startup you can get very creative so you can implement uh, creative solutions to hard problems and as long as you can prove that you know you're making you're not going to adversely impact the pipeline the production pipeline and getting to market 
uh, it makes it, you know, I would say, I don't want to say tolerable, uh, but maybe a little bit more easier to digest. Got it. And um, so you then went on to start your own company. So even as a, still staying with that smart up, uh, startup mentality, but then to kind of go in and, you know, get into a, another startup, what was, what was the kind of impetus of going into to that to say, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to plant my own flag. Well, it was very interesting. Uh, the opportunity kind of presented itself because at Leo uh, cybersecurity, I was an early advisor and it was a colleague of mine that I worked with at OpenDNS who, you know, he came to me and said, Hey, do you want to be an advisor for my startup? Uh, and my immediate response was, okay, well, what does it do? And his response was, I don't know yet, but it's going to be great. Uh, then I took the job at, at Data Gravity as the CISO. And when that spun down, uh, the company was actually starting to form, or it had formed. There was some uh, a few employees, and it was a good time to join in. And uh, I think we're up to like 24 full-time employees now, and we're not even a year old. Oh, wow. So it's uh, it's very high growth. Um, but what's very interesting and what makes me feel good is that I'm not pushing a particular product. So I'm not coming in and to a customer or a potential customer and saying, have I got a silver bullet for you? It's OK, let's take a look at what you're doing now. And in some cases, it might be good enough. It might be sufficient to. Uh, secure a particular aspect of your organization, or it could require just a few minor tweaks from a policy or procedural perspective to make it sufficient. So it's, you know, it makes me feel good in the morning that I can get up and help people with things that do not require a ridiculous investment in new technology just for the sake of having a new blinky box. Right. And I think we, you know, certainly with RSA is only a few months away and in, in, in your neck of the woods, but I, that seems to be the mentality sometimes we'll see in these, you know, the larger conferences that are very uh, product focused, let's say that, you know, you can buy your way out of security problems. So what would be some of the things that people can kind of take away as, you know, it's not about buying things. What, what are some of the, the larger impact things without a huge amount of spend that people can be kind of creative about? Ultimately, it comes down to people. You know, you can buy all the pro I So I have a, a friend of mine who I used to work with at uh, one of the banks in Bermuda, and he told me that he has he's not buying any more new technology because he has two or three security solutions that are sitting on the shelf waiting to be implemented. So that he's put an artificial freeze on new product acquisition, and that's. You know, a lot of organizations, especially if they're understaffed, have that problem of um, too many tools and not enough people to operate them. So it's it's kind of interesting when I talk to companies like that, they often say that, oh, you know, it's all well and good that, you know, this new one U or two U box does this wonderful thing, but I still have uh, I made a $2 million investment in this other technology and it hasn't, uh, you know, I, I can't rip and replace that unless you're going to pay for you know, the difference or discount it to the point where, um, you know, I'm not going to be losing or not going to be out $1 million or $500,000 just to spend another $2 million on your product. 
Yeah, it's it's funny. I think some of the metrics I've seen is you know can be anywhere for some of these larger enterprise security products can be a, a, a full time or one in one point five full time person just to manage each product. And people don't realize when they get it in the door, there's there's more to it to the care and feeding than just plugging it in. That it, yeah. it really is going to need some some management and monitoring as well. Yeah, and it, it's all well and good to say, oh yeah, just plug it in, let it run, and. That was the the big challenge with ArcSight back in the day is you would make this huge investment in the ArcSight SIM and then you would have to have, depending on the size of your organization, two or three full-time employees to manage it and constantly tune it because it wasn't, you know, it's not a toaster that you're plugging into your network. It's a box that requires constant care and feeding. Right. And so, you know, we've certainly seen the growth of the latest wave of buzzwords uh, over the past year has been machine learning and AI and how that can, you know, eliminate the need for a lot of these, a, lot, a lot of these roles to manage these products. Do you see that being the case or how do you think that type of deep learning, machine learning or AI can actually uh, positively affect and put impact into security programs? So I think that those technologies are components of a more mature security product. Um, you're not going to implement a blockchain technology to solve all of your problems if you have a poorly constructed security program. That's like saying, I'm going to come to you and sell you the best door lock in the world, uh, but you have no walls on your house. But you have a door and I can get you the best lock in the world and it's gonna cost all this money, it's the most innovative thing even though people can just walk around the door frame and get into your house. So all of these new technologies and, you know, people hear AI, most of that is guided learning, um, machine learning. It's not automated Skynet. This isn't, you know, we're not quite there. So I think people have to take everything that's said from a marketing department with a, with several grains of salt because their job is to peddle a product and they're trying to get your attention. And what gets your attention is fancy new words that seem incredibly, incredibly um, advanced and better than the other people. Yeah, I think one of the things I saw was we, we stopped using next gen in one product and it was there was using X gen. I'm like, well, there we go. I mean, it's, it's, it's X much better. Well, and, and there's anti now. So like I saw one vendor has the anti sim. Well, no, <laughs> <laughs> it's, still, yeah, you can call yourself whatever you want. That's, that's the, the beauty of uh, being a venture backed startup. You can call yourself and say whatever works and then it's someone else's problem to deliver. Exactly. And one of the things too, you know, certainly you're, you're, you're on this podcast now and I've, I've followed a lot of your blog posts over the year, but you've certainly been more involved, I would say, in the contributing to the field as well. What kind of sparked that to give back to the community? Well, I think the impetus was really when people said to me, oh, you like this tool, but you wanted to do something else, go, go fix it. It's open source. And that would drive me crazy because I wasn't a developer. I wanted particular features and functionality. And the whole mentality of here is what I have. You don't like it. Take what I've done and go do it better has a lot of benefit, but it also, it, it upsets a lot of people and it, it's kind of a put off. So what I wanted to do 
give back to the community in any way that I could was, you know, I released code, albeit very poor code and say, here's a proof of concept, go build off that. Um, I, you know, I volunteer to mentor people and, uh, try to get people speaking at conferences, which, you know, selfishly means that I don't have to fly around and go to all these conferences anymore because other people can go with their ideas and, reiterate or build on some of the things I've presented in the past. And I really do enjoy being able to help people. I've always liked to help people. And that was really the, the way that I could do it. I'm not, uh, I'm not a good developer. I'm definitely not, uh, you know, I'm not going to go volunteer at the boys and girls club because I simply don't have the time between work, the gym and coaching rugby. There's very little free time. So I, use it sparingly gotcha or distribute it sparingly <laughs> and one of the what actually had an interesting blog post recently too about you know kind of called the hey cfp management method about managing these call for papers and submissions can you kind of walk people through that because certainly you know people try to get out there and and, and find these different speaking engagements it can be a daunting task to manage okay if i'm going to submit to 30 different conferences a year where am i actually going to be speaking next week yeah and that that really happened to me so it was, uh, I found myself double booking for different parts of the country. And uh, I, when I was at OpenDNS, I was managing a team of researchers and analysts. And I had them out speaking around the world. And it was a way for me to manage my team to see where they were at any particular time. So um, part of my methodology was using Trello to make sure that I knew when all the upcoming call for papers were, when they were closing, who submitted and what was submitted, uh, if they were accepted, rejected, put on the back burner for an alternate slot, or if you simply just missed the, the call for paper altogether, then you have a, you know, another holding tank for next year so that you know, okay, well I missed it. Maybe I can do it next year. And from from that, I was able to build some dashboard visualizations and actually see our progress over time. And it, it was actually impressive after the first year of doing that, we had, I think it was somewhere around a 65% acceptance rate when we were submitting talks. And we had spoken at 52 conferences around the world in one year. Oh, wow. And you know, 65%, that's, that's pretty good considering, you know, a lot of people will submit talks and, um, it, you know, sometimes they get in, sometimes they don't, I would say it's probably the average person is probably more around somewhere in the 30 to 50% acceptance rate, especially when they're starting out. But this whole process really helped the team build better submissions, focus their research on, things that were pertinent at the time and it it streamlined the submission process because there's nothing worse than submitting to a call for papers and then saying yeah I think I want to give that talk again and then not being able to find your abstract and you have to write it all over again or search through your email or see if you can get it from that uh, from that CFP it's it's a pain so this was my way of organizing things a little bit better. No, it's great. It's funny. It's uh, I find myself now in that position too. Where, you know, towards the end of this year, we're getting into 
call for papers for next year and, and try to say, yeah, just tracking it of, you know, where, 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 where to be and, and what's going to be is, uh, coming up is, is, is great. So I, I do actually appreciate that, that thought process because you know, I find it's, it's interesting too, where you get a lot of people that are also in technology that don't necessarily rely on the technology for organization. Um, there's a lot of these great tools that are out there for project management that I don't think people realize they can, uh, they can apply in other areas as well. Yeah. And the way I look at it is, so we're always encouraged if we get rejected from a conference to ask for reasons why, you know, why wasn't the paper, what could I do better to get a, this particular talk accepted? Can you provide me feedback from the review committee? And a lot of times that's an email that gets forwarded and you just say, Oh, okay, well that's nice. And you don't really do anything with it. Maybe you take it and, uh, fold it back into your update process. A lot of people, you know, their nose is out of joint from being rejected in the first place. They'll say, oh, okay, well, they don't understand what I'm trying to do. You can take those rejection emails, attach them to the Trello card, and you know when you try to submit a particular talk again, or even to that conference the next time around, you know what, you can remember what the advisors and the review board was looking for. So it's, you know, it, I have a bad memory, so that tends to help me. <laughs> yeah, gotcha. It's, it's, it removes the cognitive load to actually put it into a computer. I like it. It really, really does. And, and one of the things, so obviously you must have had some, you know, if you kind of do some meta analysis across all the things that you'd submitted over time, is there is there particular either topics or approaches that you find gives you a higher hit ratio on getting accepted? <sighs> I think uh, for titles, alliteration, something that's kind of funny and makes people laugh is uh, always good. So one of the ones that I've had a lot of success with over the years and I've had several iterations of it was uh, facilitating fluffy forensics. So it's all around cloud forensics and um, what's available, what the challenges are, where the opportunities are, and some of the tools to help actually perform forensic analysis in public cloud environments. But a lot of people just see the title and they're like, yeah, that sounds good. It sounds funny. Um, and I often, you know, I tell people my presentation methodology, there's some people that will just lock themselves in a room and go over the presentation over and over and over and deliver it and perfect it. Uh, that's not me. I'm, I consider it more edutainment. So I, I would, you can go see someone speak on anything. Uh, you can watch the video if it's recorded later. When I'm giving a presentation, I want to make sure people are having a good time and enjoying themselves as well as learning uh, because they don't have to be there. They could be at someone else's talk or they could be out in the hallway. I might as well make it enjoyable for both them and me. Yeah, it's, it's up to, I think, you know, it's, it's, kind of cliche to make fun of it but the death by powerpoint where a lot of people just simply throw up slides and, and rely too heavily on that and don't realize that you know would they want to be in that position if they were in the audience of having to watch that you really have to kind of make it engaging um and, and do you find you try to get people to uh you know, make it a two-way street where the, the audience engages you or are you very much just kind of want to be on a platform you know what i i like the engagement i ask questions during uh, my presentation. And it's a lot of, uh, you know, show of hands, who has done this or like who in the audience believes that 
believes that X is true and okay, how many believe that Y is true? And then sometimes I'll throw, if I'm not getting a lot of uh, feedback or if I see that I'm losing the audience, I'll ask a ridiculous question. Like by a show of hands, how many people, uh, oh, I gave one the other day that was, it, it's not like, it, it's like a yes or no question. Like, um, like by a show of hands, who thinks this is true, but, or maybe false. And then they kind of put their hands up and then like, wait a minute, audibly process that, and put their <laughs> hands down, and you, you know, like, or give them three options, show of hands, who believe, who thinks that, uh, who thinks that these are correct and just kind of screws with people and makes them wake up, look up from their phone. Yeah, I, I find you have to kind of do that. You have to jar people a little bit. And, and you know, I, I started introducing, trying to do the humor a little early on to kind of throw people off in, in some of the talks. I, you know, I, you know, so my wife and I decided to move out from New York City to Denver, uh, Colorado area, f- a few months ago. And you know, the, the reason I tell people I moved moved out there is to because zombies can't climb mountains. It's our is our theory. Yeah. And so when when I when I introduce that and where I live and and um, why we moved out there, I kind of yeah, I kind of get that that look of people suddenly kind of snap to attention. Wait, did he just make a zombie reference in the, in the middle of the speech? So I find mm-hmm. you have to kind of shake their cages a little bit to get them uh, to get them paying attention early on. Yeah, I agree with that 100% because, you know, like I said, they can be anywhere. They don't need to be there. Their butts are in the seat. You know, maybe they're just there to check email, but uh, because it's the only place they can find a seat and maybe a power plug, but might as well make it enjoyable for them if they overhear stuff. Exactly. And one thing you touched on, too, was, was kind of doing some cloud forensics, and certainly the cloud is here to stay, and we're seeing more services being pushed to the cloud. Um, and from an IR perspective, it, it does offer some challenges. But what were some of the tools that, and approaches that you've looked at for doing uh, forensics in, in cloud environments? Well, it, see, what's interesting is that a lot of people do not understand the difference between um, doing forensics in the cloud or compared to forensics of the cloud. So when people, especially traditional forensics and incident response people, they have the mentality of, okay, I need to have a physical hard drive in my hand in order to perform a full forensic deep dive and full forensic acquisition and analysis on, um, on this incident. Uh, whereas in cloud environments, you're not going to get that. You're not going to go to Google or Google or Amazon or Microsoft Azure and say, Hey, I need this virtual server that my virtual guest is located on. I need to shut that down. And I need the dump of the, you know, multi petabytes of, of data that's stored because they'll laugh at you and say, you're not getting that. Um, unless, you know, you're coming there with a warrant and, you have the power of the government behind you, but the average individual is not going to get that kind of consideration. So a lot of, a lot of the tools and methodologies lend themselves well to live forensics. Uh, there are parallels between, uh, virtualization forensics. So what you would do in VMware, uh, or in it's Microsoft's thing, uh, Hyper-V. Hyper-V, thank you. Uh, There's similarities there in being able to take a snapshot and then analyze the snapshot for the memory uh, and the disks and and the data contained within each. But ultimately, live 
volatile forensic acquisition is still going to be your best friend when it comes to infrastructure as a service. Um, and you know, that's the other thing too, is when you hear cloud forensics and if you, if you do a Google search for cloud forensics, you will find a bunch of companies that provide forensic and e-discovery because they're kind of joined at the hip. Uh, a lot of these companies and a lot of it will be centered around Microsoft Office 365 or Dropbox. So the the SaaS, SaaS providers, and that's not infrastructure as a service. That's SaaS. You know, there's a smaller, much smaller subset of information that you can get from uh, those services because you're really, you're being presented with a portal or a way to interact with their service. You're not you know, you're not in control of uh, adjusting memory or disk size or whether it's turned on or off. That's just not available to you. Yeah, it's, it's find it interesting, too, from from the investigative side that with so many organizations switching over to something like an Office 365 and some of these platforms where they, they've removed that kind of infrastructure piece and they're they're purely just using the software that when you do need to get the granularity of it that's lost and i don't know if enough people uh particularly in the cio world think about that of you know if, if we need to do forensics of some sort and we need some type of logs if we switched over to a platform we might lose all of that and there's a there's kind of a granularity that that's now missing yeah it's completely true. And a lot of people are of the opinion that, oh, well, it's cloud. We can just destroy it and spin something else up. But, you know, that's like taking the approach of, oh, we'll just restore from backup and have the exact same issue hit again. Right. And so, you know, we've kind of talked about cloud and machine learning. And are there other types of emerging technologies or technologies that are coming out that you think are going to be particularly interesting to the security community or, or part of your research? You know, I, I've, I keep getting dragged back into IoT security, and that's fine. I, I enjoy IoT security. Uh, I'm of the opinion that if it has Wi-Fi or uh, a network jack, it's only a matter of time before someone plugs it in, and that includes toasters, blenders, and uh, refrigerators in office environments. So it is a big concern. And... In talking to uh, some of our clients, some of our customers, they're being told long after the fact that IoT and industrial IoT sensors and devices are being deployed and the security teams are being told after the fact, say, oh, yeah, by the way, uh, we've deployed all these things. Now we need to we need your help securing them. Yeah. Oh, by the so, way, we, we put all this stuff on the uh, production Wi-Fi and it's not segmented. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's just like, join it. Why, what's wrong? I've, I've seen that where we've gone into environments and done assessments and you, you see people just hooked up, you know, simple, simple as a Sonos speaker um, in an office environment and nobody knows about it. And it's it's this, you know, ability to detect un, unauthorized devices suddenly becomes a, a much different surface area to watch. Yeah. Like, say, a uh, LeapFrog LeapPad uh, connecting out to the internet from within a nuclear power plant. Uh, I've seen that. I've seen the traffic. It doesn't look good. <laughs> yeah, it's a hard one to explain. So, you know, there's also, you know, there's going to be more IoT devices. We can't, we can't really get away from them, as you said. But what are some of the fundamental security things that that 
organizations can do to kind of adopt the technology, but also keep themselves safe? So I think segmentation is key. You want to keep, if you treat these devices as toys, especially commercial or consumer IoT devices, um, if you treat them as toys and deploy them as if they were toys or helpers, not critical business assets, you'll be in a much better situation to defend the network. That's um, not something like you don't need webcams, like consumer webcams, uh, having wireless connectivity or being able to communicate out to the internet from within your highly secured area. There's very few use cases where I see that being of value. Um, you should also you know, rely on strong authentication methods if and when possible. Uh, from the industrial side of things, my biggest concern there is more of a supply chain question. Who's doing the testing at the various stages? A lot of the components are bought from different organizations, like different suppliers, and then you know they may have some tests, but when everything's assembled, are those being tested? Is is the sum of all of the parts being tested before being sold as a package deal? And then when they're deployed, is there any testing done or are they just being deployed as is? So we, you know, we tell people to um, lock down workstations and servers and base them off gold standard images and then vulnerability scan before they're even allowed to be on the network. Uh, I've seen very few instances of that with IoT devices. Yeah, it's interesting where, where organizations will kind of do their due diligence of finding out, you know, from a supplier for you know, traditional hardware, whether it be routers, switches, or servers, you know, they'll know where they're buying it from, they'll do that research, but when it comes to some of these IoT things, there's that 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 level of due diligence of how are we going to get updates and service and support for this is not really thought of. It's just, these are kind of cool, we, we should plug it in. Yeah, and one of the things I tell people is, very frequently, is go to an electronic store like Fry's. Um, and walk the aisle, look for things that have the Wi-Fi certified sticker or indicator on it, and then pick it up and read where it's from and what the manufacturer name is because you it's likely you've never heard of it before. It may not be a known brand name, but if you can pick it up off the shelf, there's nothing stopping one of your employees or one of your coworkers from doing the same and then bringing it into work thinking, this is a great idea. Yeah. Well, that's also the scary part about fries. You can lose you can lose an entire day there too, just wandering yeah. around. That's a great yeah, my, my wife doesn't let me go alone. No, I'm not allowed to either. <laughs> okay, Andrew, I really appreciate you taking the time today. Where can people find you and, and some of the things you're working on? Uh, best place is probably on Twitter. That's that tends to be where I hang out more often than not. Uh, it's just Andrew S M Hay on Twitter. Uh, you can also Use it, visit my website where I blog rather infrequently, uh, andrewhay.ca. And uh, my company is Leo Cybersecurity, and it's leocybersecurity.com. So L E O. Awesome. Like Leonardo da Vinci. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And I'll, I'll be sure to put all that in the show notes. And uh, I greatly appreciate you taking the time to speak to me today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Andrew. Have a good one. All right. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. 
There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.